I'm Sharon Brick Kelly. Today on The Detail... Welcome to the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, the biggest celebration in the world. It's the kind of week when the country will be eating lots of cake. 12 million people are expected to hold street parties at some point over the long weekend. And what better way to celebrate Her Majesty's Platinum Jubilee than with a special pud? Jubilee-themed food and drink flying off supermarket shelves. A palace party, special pods, a pop-up corgi cafe and lots and lots of cake. This cake, when baked, will serve 750 people on Sunday, including Prince Charles and Camilla. It's all go in the UK this weekend, and everyone's invited. To a once-in-a-lifetime celebration, Her Majesty the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. Wouldn't you just love to be there? A front-row seat at the Platinum Jubilee will cost you a sturdy tent, some bunting and a lot of patience. This is dedication. No, this is love. She's served us. She's given her life to us for 70 years. This is thank you. So I did a little Google search to find out what's going on here. And there's a bonfire in Christchurch and a few official events like a 21-gun salute. And Sky Tower is lighting up as one of the Commonwealth Jubilee beacons. But there's nothing like the 16,000 parties in the UK. And maybe that says something about our growing disconnection with the monarchy. Well, who better to talk about it than Donna Fleming, royal correspondent for the New Zealand Woman's Weekly. Donna, great talking to you. I just wonder, is, is there one memory of the Queen that really stands out for you? Oh, thousands. Thousands over the years. I think it's, yeah, the, the dignity and the humour, the way she handles things. Obviously, this happened long before. It was in the 1980s, so it was before I was writing about her. But the way she coped when the intruder broke into Buckingham Palace, that was Michael Fagan who somehow got in and sat at the end of her bed. And she just, you know, she epitomises keep calm and carry on, really. Mm. She does. It's not a job that she was born into. She was the um, daughter of the spare to the heir. So she wasn't expected to become the monarch. And then, of course, her uncle abdicated. So she had to, at the age of 10, suddenly take on this role. And it's, you know, it's 24-7. I think we've been very fortunate to have this particular woman as the queen, um, you know, could have been very different if it wasn't here. Your Royal Highness, on behalf of everyone here, we'd like to very humbly thank you for choosing us over the state opening of Parliament. I did get to meet the Queen very briefly in 1995. Um, normally when you cover royal tours, you don't get to meet the royals. Um, you follow them around and you talk to the people that they talk to. But the Queen and Prince Charles will often meet the media. It was very brief. It was just she walked past, she said, hello, nice to meet you, and sort of wandered along the line. Um, Charles and Camilla I talked to a little bit more. You're not supposed to report what they say to you. But I can say Camilla did say to me that she reads the Woman's Weekly occasionally, and that was a little bit of a shock to the system. That, that she might be reading about herself. Yeah, she has a friend, well, Charles has a former staff member who lives in New Zealand and apparently his wife sends copies of the magazine to Camilla when she's in it. 
You, you wouldn't think that they would really care. You wouldn't think so, but apparently they do. And also there's a British journalist called Arthur Edwards, who is a photographer for The Sun, and he has followed the royals for many, many years. They will do what he says. When you, he's on tour with them, he'll tell Camilla to go and stand somewhere and she'll do it. <laughs> so I interviewed him for a story about his long career and I sent the copy of the magazine to him after it appeared and the next time I saw him on a visit to New Zealand he said oh thank you again for sending me that magazine he said I gave it to Camilla (laughs) I said oh great thanks Arthur because there were pages and pages about their visit um so he said yeah she read it she seemed to like it (laughs) I think that is what you need to bear in mind is that they are real people do you think the Queen reads stories about her? I think she probably has better things to do with her time. Um, I'm sure she has staff who would update her on what's being said, if there's anything that they feel is of particular interest. But I can't imagine her sitting there at Windsor Castle with her feet up reading the Woman's Weekly. <laughs> When you say, you know, you don't forget they're, they're real people, but the reason why they're in Women's Weekly and all these other magazines is that their lives are so different to ours. They are, yes. It's kind of the real-life fairy tale, I think, and there's a fascination with people who have different lives, who have extraordinary lives, and they certainly do. I mean, you call it a fairy tale. Do you think it is still a fairy tale? I think it's possibly a fairy tale that sometimes turns out to be more Grimm Brothers than Cinderella's. Recently, her family have again caused the most difficulties, and it does appear to have affected recent polling, with 41% of 18 to 24-year-olds now saying that Britain should have an elected head of state. You know, it's not all happy endings and nice, lovely stuff that, uh, you know, despite all this privilege and wealth, it's not always a particularly easy life. And what's your feeling about how New Zealanders feel about them now? You talk about the privilege, especially mm. in the world that we're in at the moment. Do you think that they still have a strong following here? Well, to be honest, I do see a strong following here because of the Women's Weekly, because a lot of our readers are huge royal fans, so they do give us a lot of positive feedback about seeing them. But I also know from personal experience that there are a lot of people out there who just don't care and they wonder what relevance the royals have to New Zealanders today. And, yeah, I can see that. And there are people in the UK who are the same. I have family there who feel that way. Mm. Um, But I I think they will continue to be relevant. Um, I mean, the Queen's been amazing. She's just been incredible the service the things she's done over 70 years are pretty phenomenal but I think they will continue to be relevant just because the next generation will um, will have Charles obviously but then after that I think William and Kate have done so much to win people over and to show that they are going to be um, very hands-on. Um, they they support amazing causes. They really do a lot of work. And I think this is what a lot of people don't realise is they think, what's the point of the royals? But I think one of the main things they do is they shine a light on some really important causes and they get people to pay attention. And, I mean, look at Diana. 
because of her, because of what she did, she made huge changes to the way people viewed AIDS and AIDS patients. She also did um, a lot of work with homelessness and with landmines. Ma'am, a government minister's home has said you're a loose cannon by supporting this campaign. Uh, do you have any reaction to that? Virginia, I'm only trying to highlight a problem that's going on all around the world. That's all. I don't think there's any disquiet at all. We're very happy that the princess has come here. And she was really able to change people's views just by paying attention, going along, being photographed, talking about it. And I think William and Kate are going to be able to do the same thing with issues like mental health. It's a common thread, wasn't it? Mental health sort of seemed to run between all the different areas that we were working in. So whether it's homelessness and the military with yourself and addiction with me and bereavement, there was a sort of underlying thread, wasn't there, of mental health. The trouble is that their good works have been overshadowed by these other stories. It is a shame and people, it's just the way we are today, I mean look at how popular reality TV is, people just want to know what's going on behind the scenes, they do want the the gossip perhaps um, or the less worthy details of what they get up to which is a, a shame although it does um, attract a lot of attention. But sells magazines. <laughs> it, and it sells magazines, yeah. But when, like, when you talk about uh, mental health, so both Prince William and Prince Harry have spoken out about their own mental health issues, a lot of it to do with losing their mum at such a young age. Both of us have always been open to each other, saying, you know, we've, we've, never, we've never really talked about it. We've never really talked about um, losing a mum at such a young age. And when you speak to other people's families and little kids and stuff, you think wow, you know, I don't want them to have to go through the same thing. So you want to, with, with a little bit of experience, you want to help as much as you can. And I think it was really a good thing to help encourage men to speak out about what they're going through. So that does have more impact than them simply turning up to a charity and shaking people's hands. And so it's, it's kind of stuff like that that does make an impact. Yeah. What sort of impact has the Queen made? I think it's just her dedication to service and you know she doesn't have a huge impact on people's daily lives that we see I mean part of her job is doing things like signing um, laws into being but I think the fact that she just you know has gone on and on and on working she's faced some tough times especially with things that have happened in her family with her children but um, she's remained very stable and steady what about your own coverage of the Queen? Has that changed over the years that you've been doing the work? Not really. I think there's always been a huge amount of respect for the Queen in the Women's Weekly. Um, we've never, not that I can remember, ever really done harsh stories. Although back in the late 90s, around the time that Diana died, you know, a lot of people were really upset about the Queen's reaction to Diana's death, the fact that she didn't show any emotion, really. And there was a, not, a lot of knocking of the Queen and the royal family, and we did report on that. Good afternoon, everybody. We interrupt your regular programming because Queen Elizabeth is about to address the British nation, and given what an extraordinary week it has been since Princess Diana was killed, a couple of minutes ago we saw on the balcony there the windows open and the television lights inside as the Queen prepares to make what is a very unusual 
public television statement. We're told that it would be as much as anything a tribute uh, to Diana at the end of several days during which there's been tremendous pressure on the royal family to make a more public appearance than they have. What did you make of it yourself? I just think that's who she is. I think she's uh, the generation of stiff upper lip, don't show your emotion, keep calm and carry on, and that one has to show that you know one keeps going in these situations and that she's not given to emotion. But she listened to the advice that she was given and she um, returned to London early from Balmoral. Since last Sunday's dreadful news, we have seen throughout Britain and around the world an overwhelming expression of sadness at Diana's death. So she did take on board people's feelings and you know, allow herself to be seen as a little bit more emotional, I guess. It is not easy to express a sense of loss, since the initial shock is often succeeded by a mixture of other feelings, disbelief, incomprehension, anger, and concern for those who remain. What do you know about the Queen's daily life that maybe, you know, the rest of us don't? I don't think there is anything I know about the Queen's daily life that the rest of us don't, because if I know anything, I write it. (laughs) So I don't have a... I'm not keeping any secrets to myself. She is just incredibly dedicated to service. She, every day, except for, I think, Christmas Day, and is it Good Friday? I'm not 100% sure. She has to read her red boxes, which are sent to her from Parliament. So it's details about what's going on it's about laws that she's going to have to sign it's um, keeping up with everything she meets up with the prime minister once a week has done since 1952 when she became queen and Winston Churchill was her prime minister so she does have those sort of routines and things come out occasionally when we hear about tv programs that she likes to watch but yeah those little snippets are quite treasured because We don't hear a huge amount of her private life. And is she still doing that, Donna? Is she still having those weekly meetings with the Prime Minister and doing the daily, the red boxes every day? Yeah, she she does that. But apparently recently she's been getting Prince Charles along to have a look at the red boxes with her. So she's slowly starting to hand over some of her workload. Prince Charles filling in for his mother, opening Parliament. Her Majesty's government's priority is to grow and strengthen the economy and help ease the cost of living for families. The prince did not sit on his mother's throne or wear the crown. The queen remains the sovereign. What about things like her friends? Do you know who her close friends are? Well, a lot of her close friends, she used to be very close to her cousin, a woman called Margaret Rhodes, who sadly died a few years ago. This is the problem when you get to 96... A lot of your friends who have been there with you the whole way through, you know, aren't there anymore. She's outliving them all. She does, she's very close to her dresser, a woman called Angela Kelly, who makes a lot of her clothes, not all of them, but makes a lot of them and then helps her with her outfits, helps her to match hats to coats and so forth. And they are very close. And when the Queen was in lockdown during COVID, Angela was one of the few people who stayed with her at Windsor Castle the whole way through. And and I, I do wonder what it must be like for her because, you know, Prince Philip's gone now. She's at Windsor Castle. 
she has Andrew living on the grounds. He's probably the one who's closest to her. But the others aren't living on her doorstep, so she doesn't see family members every day, from what I understand. The attention of all is gripped as Her Majesty mounts the dais to the throne. Now 96 years of age, Buckingham Palace says the Queen has been suffering mobility problems. Good morning, Your Majesty. How are you? Well, as you can see, I can't move. The Queen's recent health issues have got people wondering what happens when the longest reign ends plans for when Her Majesty mm. does pass and that operation is called Operation London Bridge. We mm. know a little bit about it but of course much of that is uh, shrouded in secrecy. The demise of the Queen will also be the moment of accession for a new monarch. And at the exact moment in which she passes, Prince Charles will become King. Edward Young, the Queen's private secretary, will be the first official to convey the news, setting Operation London Bridge into full gear. On a secure line, Young will directly inform the British Prime Minister that London Bridge is down. And the news of her death will be distributed to various heads of state before it is disclosed to the general public. Once the Prime Minister is alerted, the Foreign Office's Global Response Centre will alert the 15 governments where the Queen is still considered the head of state. This will be the beginning of 10 days of sorrow and spectacle, which are officially numbered as D-Day, D plus 1, D plus 2, and so on until D plus 9. And that's just the beginning. Of course, dignitaries will be arriving from around the world for her funeral at Westminster Abbey. For a lot of people, you know, they won't have seen anything like this. And it's it's a huge deal because when you think about it, you know, her name, not so much here, but in the UK, her name, um, ER2 is on post boxes, telephone boxes, stamps. Everything will have to change. And there's a big plan in place to do this. It's been organised for many, many years. How quickly will that change? Some things won't change instantly because, you know, you can't go around and pull down all the post boxes overnight, but it will be rolled out in stages. I don't think they'll do anything too drastic until there's been a funeral. And what will it change from, ER2 to what? CR, presuming that Charles is going to be King Charles, he can, of course, choose to be whoever he wants to be, he doesn't have to use his name. Well, there has been a previous Charles. Yeah, he'll be the third one. Yeah, so it is massive. There will be huge changes. And it sounds like Charles has already got a lot of ideas about what he does and doesn't want to do. I've just actually seen something where it said that he has decided he still wants to support a lot of the pet um, projects that he has and... In the past, the Queen has been very impartial with a lot of things. She's never really talked out, talked about things that she supports, causes that she believes in, whereas Charles has come out and he's talked about environmental causes, which he got absolutely pilloried for many years ago, and it turns out he was right. He's, he's gone on about architecture, and he got a lot of headlines for criticising some of the new architecture in the UK. He's supported organic farming yeah, so he has put his opinion out there, whereas the Queen remains completely impartial. It will be different with Charles, and then it will be, will be different again with William, because he's already said that he's going to share his opinions. And but They have to be careful, don't they? They have to be careful not to get political. They do. It's a fine line, but 
after the recent uh, trip that William and Kate took to the Caribbean when they got a lot of backlash over the visit and um, their sort of insensitivity to uh, colonisation and the issues that it's had in places like that. I strongly agree with my father, the Prince of Wales, who said in Barbados last year that the appalling atrocity of slavery forever stains our history. I want to express my profound sorrow. Slavery was abhorrent and it should never have happened. Before they left Jamaica, some of those campaigning for reparations there told me they thought William and Kate's visit was tone deaf, but then they were never going to welcome members of the royal family. For some, tradition is to be celebrated. For others, it's a reminder they want to move on. And William went back and had meetings with his staff and his advisers and said, well, you know, we need to talk out about these things and also, you know, we need to do things a little bit differently in the future. They've always had a policy in the royal family of never complain, never explain. You know, in generations gone by, they've never explained why they've done things a certain way, but that's slowly changing. And apparently, according to the sources we have, William has said in the future, they will explain. They will talk out a bit more. So that'll be really interesting to see. It is tough because it will, in a way remove a little bit of the mystique and people will think, well, you know, what right do they have to talk out about these things? But also when they don't say anything, you know, often silence is seen as being complicit. The whole issue of colonisation, I'm thinking, that's also a big issue here. So I'm wondering how future generations will regard them. Yeah, a lot of people look at them and think, well, what do you actually do? What is your relevance? And there will definitely be the discussion one day about New Zealand moving away from having the Queen or whoever's in charge as our um, head of state. I think that's definitely coming. Do you think it's coming as soon as the Queen dies? That's an interesting one because in the past I would have said yes. I would have said, okay, as soon as she dies, that's it. People will say, right, we don't want her as we don't want a monarchy anymore but I think the fact that people know William is coming up will make them think hang on a second you know maybe is it still going to be worth it because he, he will do things differently but I, I it will be the end of an era and I'm sure that it will be the catalyst for quite a few shake-ups really around the commonwealth I've got a teenage daughter she's 19 and I know she thinks that they need to apologise for colonisation for a start and be a bit more understanding of you know, what life is like in New Zealand and what their relevance is to us. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Donna Fleming. Kakite anō. Ka